Welcome to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and my first guest on today's show is Dr. Leslie Farquhar Zanetti. Dr. Zanetti is the Senior Director of Medical Managed Care at Sarepta Therapeutics. She is one of our 2023 Women Who Lead honorees. Congratulations and welcome to the show, Leslie. Thank you so much, Ann. I want you to start out and talk just a little bit about your career and what you do. Actually, I am a pharmacist and I have a doctor of pharmacy degree from the University of Michigan. And most people, when they think of pharmacists, they think of um, the person who's behind the counter at CVS or Kroger with a white coat on. And And throughout my career, I really wanted to be identified as someone who made a difference in patients' lives, also as somebody who played a key part in the healthcare team, and and as well as changing the perception of the the role of pharmacy. How do you go about doing that? Um, I went about it a couple of different ways. Early on in my career, I supported pharmacy education. I taught um, pharmacy technician. I was a pharmacy technician instructor at Oakland Community College and at Washtenaw Community College. I also taught uh, in the pharmacy program and had pharmacy students on the clinical rotation with me. So I was a clinical assistant professor at the University of Michigan. I was also an adjunct professor at both Wayne State and Ferris State. And then I gave back to my profession and specifically the University of Michigan by serving on the Board of Governors for the College of Pharmacy to really talk about the curriculum and to bring it to the forefront of the education, different avenues of pharmacy that go beyond just the retail pharmacist or the hospital pharmacist because there's so many areas that you can go into as a pharmacist in today's um, world. So as the Senior Director of Medical Managed Care at Sarepta Therapeutics, what are you doing on a daily basis? Talk a little bit about the work that you're doing there now, Leslie. Sure. So my job right now is to prepare a team of PharmDs. So there's um, seven of us, um, six on my team plus myself. And we are preparing the um, for the launch of gene therapy for uh, mm-hmm. muscular dystrophy. And I know um, gene therapy, there, there might be a misconception out there, but it has been researched for over over 50 years. And it's a it's it's a technology that's fascinating, and the the intent of this um, drug, if you want to say it, is to insert a, a correct instruction manual into your cell so that your body can make a protein that that's missing hmm. in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And if if you think about, um, I'm dating myself here, but that's okay. You know the Jerry Lewis telethon sure. that we always had on Labor Day, and and these are boys who had muscular dystrophy. There's about nine to 12,000 boys in the U.S. who have Duchenne, and, and they have a really horrible journey um, of, you know, losing milestones. And, you know, for instance, at 13, they lose their ability to walk. By 18, their, their muscles of their, their lungs get, you know, destroyed, and so they need to go on a, a breathing machine. And, and sadly, they all die at 18. And oh. so I I made the change over to Sarep because it's a company that, believes in making a difference in in family lives. And so what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis is I am, you know, working with the, the field medical pharmacist team. And our role is to educate the pharmacy directors and the medical directors at the insurance plans 
So we're meeting with, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan, Health Alliance Plan, Priority Health, Michigan Medicaid. But my team is is nationwide. So we're also meeting with, you know, health plans in the 50 states. In addition, we're working with the pharmacists at the sites of care where they're going to administer this drug so we can ensure that it's, you know, safely and accurately, you know, compounded. This really sounds like extremely rewarding work because you're able to use your experience in the pharmacy world and make a huge difference in the lives of families who have to deal with this horrible disease. Yes, I think in the story, it really is, it's the boys and the families who are the heroes of this story because it's like if we can make a difference in their lives, at the end of the day, everyone Everyone feels better, and I have a lot of personal satisfaction in, in knowing that, um, you know, I'm representing a company where we want to bring a medication that's going to in, improve improve lives. Are you also looking toward a cure? It might be kind of a silly question, but I know you're always looking at advanced technologies and new ways to do things. Do you think that someday there will be a cure for something like this? You know, that's hard to tell because when we think about the rare diseases, it's often due to a, a g- genetic, you know, mutation or alteration in, in the genes. And science is advancing. Uh, this is gene transfer therapy that, you know, I'm talking about. We also have other components within the cell with, you know, drugs that do that. Down the road, there's, I think, probably a lot of the listeners and you have heard about CRISPR-Cas9 and I, I like to call it molecular scissors and tweezers where they can pull out the bad, you know, part of the gene and then replace it with the new one. And whether it is going to promote a cure is still kind of early, but the goal is to change the trajectory. We know, you know, what the course is for these boys and anything we can do to extend their quality and their, you know, their life is, is right now the main, the main focus. But with that said, 30 years from now, I think it's going to be fascinating to see where, you know, the innovation that, you know, pharmacy is bringing and and the pharmaceutical companies are bringing, you know, what it's going to bring to the field. And, you know, I'm thinking just here within Duchenne, the innovation that we're bringing right now um, is really hopefully allowing families to be able to imagine tomorrow's and just what the future would look like. Well, it's incredible. Isn't it interesting to you to see the advancements in 2023 compared to when you started years ago? Oh, my goodness, yes. I know when I started years ago, we had, you know, just small molecules. Some of the drugs that we were using for hypertension were novel, you know, brilliant drugs. And then now it's like we've advanced to, you know, some biotech drugs. We've advanced to some of the gene therapy drugs. We have you know, gene therapy that we're using also, um, you know, for the treatment of cancer and some hemophilia and for sickle cell anemia, just all sorts of diseases. And just it, it's very exciting to see technology grow to meet unmet needs and in, in bringing better health and better care to, to patients and families who need it. I always like to ask my women who lead honorees to give our listeners a little career advice are there a lot of women in this field, and what kind of advice do you have for young women who are interested in this, Leslie? Yes, so I um, pharmacy is is a pretty fortunate field where we're probably sixty percent women, 
And I always try to encourage people to consider when they're looking at healthcare fields to consider pharmacy. And oftentimes they just think of the traditional pharmacist role that is the person behind the counter or maybe working in a hospital. And I spend time mentoring, you know, high school girls just talking about here's everything you can do with the pharmacy degree because you can work, you know, pretty much anywhere. And you have to like math and science. And but there's also the human touch where you get to talk to people. And I just say explore pharmacy because there's so many opportunities. We've got three great universities within the state of Michigan, and there's so many um, avenues where you can go. Dr. Leslie Farquhar Zanetti, Senior Director of Medical Managed Care at Sarepta Therapeutics. Congratulations on being one of our 2023 Women Who Lead honorees. Thank you so much. You are listening to Women Who Lead. We'll be back right after these messages. Sometimes I just cannot believe all the storms we've gone through here. I can only hope that we'll be able to leave this house to you one day, baby. You're our legacy. Planning for these disasters will make sure we're safe. And it's the best way to protect that legacy. Protect your legacy. Visit ready.gov forward slash plan for the tools and tips you need to start your emergency preparedness plan today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Silly, careless human. You unleashed my power. Just try and stop me. I dare you. Debris burning is the leading cause of wildfires in Michigan. All it takes is a spark. Play with me and you will get burned. Don't go starting something wild. Burn safely by contacting your local fire department or visiting michigan.gov slash burn permit. Sponsored by the Michigan Department of Natural Resources and the Michigan Association of Broadcasters. Put a frog in a pot of boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in a pot of cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. As a metaphor for us and all that we go through as veterans, it's a story that rings true. We learn to endure the heat in silence. We apply what we learn to life, the bills, the job, the family, things we're expected to handle with ease. When life heats up around us, we just try to stay afloat. We let the water boil. Reaching out isn't easy, but you've never been interested in easy. You join because you are not afraid of hard work. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait until the water boils. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. Tomorrow at 4, the undefeated Michigan Panthers make their Ford Field debut against the New Jersey Generals. So if you can't be there, be here. We have the game without long pregame chit-chat. Coverage starts at 4 and kickoffs a few minutes later on Michigan's home for Panthers football, 760 WJR. I'm Ann Thomas. Congratulations to the 2023 Women Who Lead class. Heather Ray, president and CEO of Common Ground, is dedicated to helping Michigan families in crisis. Well, the number one thing I've heard is we can't find help. 
We can't find a psychiatrist. We can't find therapists. So the workforce issue is felt not only by employers, but by people served. To learn more about Heather Ray, go to WJR.com. Special thanks to General Motors for supporting women who lead. listening to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and we continue the conversation now by introducing you to Dr. Diane Kress. Dr. Kress is a registered dietitian and associate professor of food science at Wayne State University. Diane, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, Diane, an interesting story caught my attention, and I wanted to get your take on something. So, there is some research out there on our dietary carbon footprint. Now, we always hear about carbon footprints, but dietary. So what they're saying is that we have to be very, very careful about putting meat in landfills. What do they mean by that? Well, there's a few things that go into that into that statement. So let's let me backtrack a little bit and say meat is very important, and we'll, we'll elaborate on that. But putting any food into the landfill is bad. Oh. And, and the reason that is is because when you put food into a landfill, and, and not everybody's aware there's more food in landfills than anything else, so even more than your plastics that we've been worrying about for so long, which we should worry about. Sure. But the food, um, when it gets in there, because it's trapped and there's no oxygen, it generates a lot of methane, and methane is a really potent greenhouse gas. We always talk about CO2, right? And we're familiar with listening, you know, to sure. hearing about that. But methane is about 25 times more potent at trapping heat in the atmosphere, which is the problem ultimately, right? Is the, the warming planet. So, so when you put le- any food in a landfill, it generates methane. The problem with beef specifically. And, um, you know, let me start by saying I am never one to suggest people can't consume beef at all. I was going to say, you don't want us to become vegans or vegetarians. I mean, if you do, that's great. Sure. But it's not necessary for making beneficial changes to the planet. Um, It is necessary to cut back, to cut back pretty significantly, maybe about half of what we eat now. Um, And that's half of what we eat. But also averages in the vegans and vegetarians. So for the big meat eaters, it's much less than half of what they eat. But the problem with beef is twofold. One, that you know, they're ruminants. They have all these stomachs, and they ferment their food in their stomachs. And then when they burp and make other eruptions, they generate a lot of methane. Um, the other thing that happens is cows take a lot of land to grow them up so we can eat them and so that land needs to be cleared and so a lot of deforestation and loss of loss of biodiversity occurs because of growing up cows for food and the other thing that happens is you have to clear a lot of land to grow the food that we feed to the cows that we then eat so it's a very indirect um, process of getting that energy from the sun into our stomachs when it comes by way of beef so then when you clear all that land, you lose your you lose your carbon sinks, right? So that contributes indirectly that way to CO2. So I'm not anti-beef eating completely. I just think we need to, to cut back pretty significantly, so, probably by about 75% in the rich countries. 
how do we keep food out of landfills if it's so ah. bad for the environment? Right. You keep food. Uh, this is such a great question. And the answer is you eat the food you buy. Okay. Don't throw it away. So there's a lot of effort going on locally. Um, a colleague of mine has started a nonprofit called Make Food Not Waste. Yes. People can navigate to that site and get all sorts of really good information on, on how not to waste food. But the, the short answer to that question is how not to put food in landfills is to only buy what you plan to eat. Eat your leftovers, and I always kind of joke that And what I don't want to eat as a leftover, if maybe it's been left over for too long, my dog loves it. So it's sort of upcycling to somebody else. Don't put it in the landfill. Find something else to do with it, and if it's become really inedible, compost it. So those are some ways to, to reduce waste in the home. And, you know, it's sometimes surprising to realize that so much of the food waste that occurs like 40% of the food we grow goes to waste. Wow. About half of that happens in our homes. It's what we do at home. So we really can make a big difference in reducing food waste and not getting food into the landfills. And then, you know, that has a really positive impact on, um, on climate and on the warming temperatures. You mentioned composting. Can you give a little bit of advice for the average homeowner on how do you do that? Oh, <laughs> I wish I were better at it. So I live in Detroit. So in Detroit, there are two companies, and I apologize that I can't say the name of them right now. Um, easy enough to Google and find those. They will come and they will collect your food scraps and they will educate you on how to um, collect them and they will pick them up. So that's the easy way to do it. If you're doing it yourself in your backyard, you need some equipment um, and some knowledge about how to process your scraps so that they do decompose properly. And again, I have to defer to Google or you know somebody who knows better than I how to actually do that. It's not hard, but you just have to get educated about it. It's very interesting that this has come to light because frankly, you don't hear a lot about the fact that food in a landfill is a really big problem. So I really appreciate uh, you joining us today, Dr. Diane Kress, a registered dietitian and associate professor of food science at Wayne State University. I hope you have a wonderful day. And you as well. Thanks so much for having me. You are listening to Women Who Lead. We'll be back right after this. As Women Who Lead continues, we now welcome Sister Rosemary Sam to the show. Sister Rosemary Sam has been working on the holy grounds of Lourdes for 46 years. Sister, welcome to Women Who Lead. Yes. So talk a little bit about your work on the holy grounds of Lourdes for 46 years, Sister. Wow, that's amazing. And I started out humbly serving meals in the huge dining room. After seven, no, after three summers, they sent me down to one of the pavilions. We have about six buildings where the people who have limited uh, money come with, if they couldn't come to the city of the poor, they wouldn't be able to afford hotels. So then I, I was 
thinking I was uh, climbing the ladder of service because I was in uh, responsible, responsable, that means the one in charge of the pavilion building. So I had different groups, Irish, French, Italian, Polish, and I was like a hotel keeper, and I had to know who was coming, have places for them, help with the cleaning squad every day, and that went on for, I think it was about seven years. And then they gave me some other jobs, and then for the rest of my years, they sent me down in the main office of the City of the Poor, or uh, in French, Cité Secours, in town, right across from the grotto. That's the main uh, stepping stone for people to come up on our buses and be up at City of the Poor. So I was really in that job the rest of my years uh, with our, our wonderful uh, uh, leader who, who died early last year. She was in her 60s. We're still, we're still uh, stunned. But we would be the people who welcome any class of people who would come into our office. Some are wanting to know where the city of the poor is. Some wouldn't want to know where the grotto is. Some would want to know how you register a mass and so on and so on. So we were agents of information, I would say. And so the rest of my years up to age 80, I worked in the uh, office there, which is the face of the city of the poor, down in town, and the other jobs, we were right up in the beautiful mountains where many families, as they were getting older, they would sell their properties, and that's how the this uh, wonderful piece of land with about five or six um, uh, pavilions or rooms uh, that we would put the people up, that's how that uh, has grown and grown. The community was begun by a bishop, French bishop called Jean Rodin, R-O-D-H-A-I-N. And he is the one who started this idea. And when he died, he was buried uh, in a, a wonderful place right at the um, chapel up in the hills, up in our uh, upper level, where many people come and they want to have mass there with their groups. So that's the bishop who started this city of the poor. So, Sister, I want you to, to describe Lourdes for our listeners. What is it like? Are you talking about the, well, the town and then up above in the mountains? The town has grown up with many all around the um, grotto. This is the main place. All people just flock to the grotto where our Blessed Mother appeared to St. Bernadette. And uh, I have to say to you, after 40, 46 years, you never get enough of it. And the lines of people are kept in order by what we call the stretcher bearers, the men who take duty, keeping the line in order and directing us in and out of the grotto grounds. And constantly, it's people like any people like me, we uh, go into the grotto and on our left, covered by a glass, we see the flowing waters from the gav, 
where Bernadette was told in one of the apparitions to dig into the ground. And so that flowing of water has never stopped. And that is the source of, of the Lourdes water that so many people want, some taking home and so on and so on, including me, including most of us. Then we walk around and we are under the uh, statue of the Blessed Mother up in the um, up in the rocks as the best the sculptors could uh, design as what Bernadette was talking about. So up in the um, the the upper part of the grotto, we pass by, we touch the stones, we kiss the stones, and then these uh, men are there to not let us, you know, stay too long so that we can move the uh, people along. So then in front of the grotto, they have many benches set up so that if we want longer to stay there and to pray, well, we can find a place on those benches and do that. And I want to just tell you one thing, Anne, that I just adore seeing every, every year. Every year, as I've sat there after I've had my turn going through the grotto grounds, I almost have a little uh, envy that I'm not Italian, but I'm close. I'm Lebanese-American, and so <laughs> I would watch these Italian women who would be getting ready to get back on trains or whatever and go to Italy. But before doing that, they stop under that statue of the Blessed Mother. And out of their their bags come these lovely um, embroidered handkerchiefs. They take out of plastic bags. They take those handkerchiefs and they touch them to the grotto where there's some dew. And, and they put them back in their plastic um Bags, and I know they're taking those handkerchiefs home to bless this neighbor, this family member, and so on. Sure. And they have such a profound faith that instead of just keeping on walking straight ahead to out of the grotto grounds, oh, the Italian women don't do that. They look up at the um, statue, they get their handkerchiefs blessed. And then they keep looking at our Blessed Mother and throwing kisses to her as they're walking out of the grotto backwards. So the, these men are making sure they don't fall or that. So you see different kind of devotions, yeah, Anne, that incredible. are so moving. And I wait every summer to see when the Italian women uh, appear, and you just know they have a profound faith. So you see some things that are just so homey like that, too, and it's it's wonderful. One thing I want to point out, Anne, is that on Sunday morning and Wednesday morning, they have what they call the International Mass. And our group is slated to do both days, Sunday morning and Wednesday morning at 9.30. So um, not, not far from the grotto, they've built an underground basilica, maybe the size of a football field. So we go down in there. And there are hundreds of priests that are waiting in the parade to come in and get the uh, mass started. And just thousands of people in these um, uh, benches. Now, that's twice a week. And before the mass, people may be talking. 
in short time, a priest will come up to a microphone and he just shoes us. And the, the obedience is marvelous. You can hear a penny drop. And so there's the beauty of the uh, religious spirit and then the, the mammoth uh, turnout of people and devo- devotion. And that is a very, very special um, devotion. And Sister Rosemary Sam, I want to make sure that we also mention that the Catholic Foundation of Michigan is going to fund scholarships for two University of Detroit Mercy healthcare students to join the pilgrimage to Lourdes, France in May of 2023. What a wonderful thing. You are listening to Women Who Lead. We'll be back right after this. listening to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas, and in May, Deacon Jeremy Schuchbach will be ordained, and he will become a priest in the Archdiocese of Detroit. He is one of five seminarians who are going to be ordained, and I wanted to take the time to introduce you to Deacon Schuchbach. Deacon, welcome to the show. Hi, Mrs. Thomas. Uh, It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So talk to me a little bit about your education at Sacred Heart Major Seminary. I want our listeners to know I am on the board at the seminary, and I've gotten to know a little bit more about the seminary and all of the wonderful people who teach there, the students, the staff. So I just want you to explain to our listeners, you know, what happens at Sacred Heart Major Seminary? Yeah, uh... I, the first thing I'd say about the education is I, I think that I have profited from it greatly, and I think it's it's really quite excellent. Um, I, I've always kind of had a bit of an academic bent myself. Uh, when I was an undergraduate, I studied, I chose philosophy as a major, which a lot of people don't do, uh, and so I've always kind of uh, been that way, and I've been really pleased and thrilled that. Uh, Continuing to dive into the rich intellectual tradition of the church is something that I've been able to to do, to continue to do at seminary. Um, in a really special way, I think I've been influenced by the the studies in in major seminary in, in theology. Uh, I've uh, there are a couple of professors in particular come to mind: uh, Dr. Keating and Dr. Dr. Daniel Keating and Dr. Mary Healy. Uh, Dr. Healy teaches scripture and Dr. Keating teaches patristics and especially in the first two years of our major seminary, our theologate, we spend a lot of time learning what it says in the scriptures. We spend a lot of time learning how the fathers interpreted the scriptures, what what the fathers did in the early councils of the church to uh, kind of move forward the church's understanding of uh, of who Jesus is and, and of all the things that are contained implicitly in scriptures but needed to be drawn forth. Um, and kind of seeing all of that, like, that fundamental stuff, that that early stuff, uh, really changed the way I understood theology. I'm kind of used to looking at it from, like, the, the back-end sure. perspective of the Church's 2,000-year tradition. Like, I know what it says in the Catechism, uh, but what I didn't know is that there's just this whole history of development of how, like, you know, Jesus 
came and he did these things and they were written down here and here's how they were interpreted here and here's how they were, you know, and here's how that developed. And it was just, it was so amazing to kind of witness how, uh, how we got to where we are today with the Catechism of the Church and all that went into that and kind of seeing, um, seeing what went into the building up of our theology has been so fruitful for me. And uh, it's, it's had the effect that I've, it's really helped me to fall in love with Jesus and with the Church and with our teachings. Deacon Shootback, can you talk a little bit about this beautiful gem in Detroit? People may not realize it, but the seminary is a old and beautiful building that is, is just in really wonderful condition and shape. It's a gem in Detroit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one thing about it, just quite simply, it's it's physically aesthetically beautiful it is uh it's sometimes compared by students here to, to being at hogwarts from harry potter or yes. just a medieval castle uh but i i'm not joking or exaggerating in the slightest when i say that i actually regularly take time just to walk around the outside of the building and look at it because it's beautiful and that's very relaxing for me um I, you know a lot of times i'll just take my rosary walk and walk around the building and and just marvel at <laughs> at how beautiful it is. So it's the building itself is is a gift, but also what's what's going on with the formation program. Um, I think it's one of the best seminaries in the country. Um, and so here's here's maybe a little inside look at at seminary life. Um, from time to time, we do things where we. Uh, we interact with seminarians from other seminaries, uh, you know, different programs sure. where lots of seminarians come together. And um, I've, I've pretty consistently found that, and I think this is, this is perhaps just human nature, but a lot of times other seminarians, they'll always kind of like, you know, sort of like complain about their seminaries. <laughs> uh, and, and it's almost like, you know, the little competition develops, like who can tell like the worst story about their seminary. But mm-hmm. I've consistently found myself being the one that's like, nah, I've pretty much have only good things to say about where I come from. Uh, <laughs> and and I, I have even heard from other people that aren't involved with Sacred Heart that, that it's very, very highly regarded. So I think it's one of the best seminaries in the country and um, excellent teaching and formation for us who are studying to be priests here. And I know they do a lot of work for lay people as well. Uh, So, and I think that's actually one of the unique things about it is that um, even though as seminarians, we have uh, to a certain level, a little bit of removal from the world. uh, It's pretty neat to be in classes, you know, next to people who are studying the same theology, but not necessarily moving towards priest but just trying to be a a lay minister um or a deacon or something like that absolutely can you talk a little bit about your call to the priesthood you know how old were you and and how did this develop yeah uh it it kind of it began uh when i was very probably about six years old and simply it began with my being very impressed with the example of, of different priests who were in my life. Uh, I, uh, I grew up going to a Catholic school in Clarkston called Everest Academy, run by the Legionaries of Christ. And I thought that the, the priests that ran the school were just amazing men. Uh, they were men that were very fun to be around, very filled with joy, always big smiles, always joking, 
uh, always making other people happy, uh, and, yet, and they also clearly loved Jesus Christ a lot. They kind of wore it on their sleeve, and I was always very impressed with that combination of of love of God and human joy, and I kind of wanted to be like that. So that's kind of how it started for me, is just that, uh, that level of attraction. And then when I got older, uh, I kind of began to discern more intentionally and ask the Lord if, you know, if this desire that had been in my heart from a young age was really from Him and if it was really what He wanted me to do with my whole life. And uh, after praying pretty deliberately for a couple years, asking the Lord for a clearer sense of direction, He was kind enough to answer my prayer one day with um, just, I, I experienced in my own mind a very clear sense of peace and invitation that I knew to be from him. And uh, it wasn't, he was telling me that I had to do it, uh, but I knew that he was inviting me to it. And I, uh, I decided to put my trust in his will and I haven't regretted it since. Now you're going to be a priest in May. How are you doing? Are you nervous? Are you excited? <laughs> you know, what, where are you right now? Uh I think I'm more excited than nervous. Um, one of the really beautiful things about uh, the tract of formation is that we, we're ordained deacons, and then we have a whole year before we're ordained priests. I think a lot of people don't realize that once we're ordained deacons, in a certain, to a certain extent, like the decision's made, like the deal is sealed. When I was ordained a deacon, I promised lifelong celibacy and obedience to the Bishop of Detroit. Uh, and so from that point forward, like I was locked into this life. Uh, so we, we'd say that's when discernment stopped. Uh, and it was, what's kind of cool about that is that there's still a year left before the priestly ordination. And so that's a year in which you're not asking, Lord, is this really what you want for me anymore? That that question has been answered. It's just, it's all about just preparation. So I think that has taken away a lot of, there was some anxiety leading up to diaconate, but that's gone. And, and I think doing it that way gives us the blessing of just being able to approach our priesthood, priestly ordination with largely just peace and excitement. And that's kind of where I'm at right now. Deacon Jeremy Schupbach, well, congratulations, and it was really nice to talk to you and get to know you. Thank you for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been great to be here. You've been listening to Women Who Lead. I'm Ann Thomas. Thank you for being with us today, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend.